0: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we told you last week, uh, Premier Doug Ford was in Hamilton last week. Uh, we had Keenan Lewis, the President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, uh, in to talk about that. Uh, we didn't have access. There was no media access, essentially, for the Premier. But uh, we're told that there were some issues that were dealt with uh, with the meetings with the business community. Uh, to bring us up to speed on that, Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough Glenbrook and also the Parliamentary Assistant to the Ministry of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade, uh, joins us to talk about this. Donna, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today.
1: Happy National Radio Day. My very first job in broadcasting was at CSHKMF in
0: uh, we all have it in there our blood. It's, it's part of the DNA, I guess, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it is.
0: Let me, let me ask you right up front of why the meeting? What, what was the, the motivation for this? I mean, there are a lot of communities in this town, that in this province, really, that are crying for the Premier and his attention at this stage uh, to spend an afternoon in Hamilton with business leaders. What was this all about?
1: Well, I've been working on it for quite a while, and uh, I'm passionate about our community, the entire city, and I really believe in my heart, and I think the Premier now believes that Hamilton, I say, the key in turning the province around, not just a key, but the key in terms of what we can do, what we can provide to ensure that there's economic prosperity right across Ontario. And if you think about the places that we toured, we began at the air, uh, rather, the harbor, which uh, our, our listeners may not know, but it is the largest port on the Great Lakes it has it is the busiest port on the Great Lakes and then we went to DeFasco and had a private meeting with um, executive senior executives at DeFasco to talk about the impact of tariffs and uh, what can be done and and can't be done and and how it's uh, you know that's threatening really thousands of jobs from there I wanted him to see the West Harbor GO station because uh, you probably have been in a similar situation, but I don't know how many photo ops I attended at the West Harbor Go Station talking, but all day go. And he just watched the tumbleweeds and talked about, I think there are only about three or four trains out of there daily and none on weekends. From there, we went to a, a local farm to Bennett, and then to the airport. And my point was to show him the connectivity, the multimodal connectivity to to move goods um, in and out of Ontario. Uh, across Canada, and of course, um, to our southern neighbors, our, our biggest trading partner, Hamilton is the key to economic prosperity, and I think the premier recognizes that now.
0: All right, with all this important stuff going on, and all these important leaders, and, and this 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 opportunity to 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 school the premier about what was going on, especially in this particular area, why limit and actually, in in to be clear about it, eliminate any access from the media to talk to the premier about this.
1: Uh, he was actually given access um, at the end of the roundtable. CHDH was there. Anybody that had been there was welcome to interview him, and they had unfettered access to him. I didn't think it was appropriate. The reality is business leaders don't want to be used as political backdrops, and I know it's a shift from the previous government. Where announcements were made and remade and, and announcements were made about projects that didn't have money or had been announced prior to the day that they're being reannounced and the media is there. This was an actual working session. We didn't want this to just be an elongated photo op. We met and business leaders, as I said, are more frank when the media isn't in the room. Anybody who had shown up at the end of the day would have been able to speak to uh, anyone at the, if they wanted to, anybody who attended the meeting, and certainly the premier and myself. Uh, as I said, CH happened to show up. They waited. They got their interview, they, and uh, he was quite willing to speak to them about it. Uh, it wasn't about restricting the media. It was about allowing the business community to talk openly and frankly. We don't want to just announce you know, we're not going to govern by photo ops. That's not what this this government is doing. Yeah, but Donna, that, listen,
0: you you know as well mm-hmm. as I do. Going back to your to, to those days, then when you were on this side of the microphone, that that politicians, businesses uh, business leaders will be used as photo ops if politicians want them to be. I mean, that's not a media creation. That's a political creation. And mm-hmm. Donna Skelly, the reporter, would be incensed if she didn't have full access to the premier of any political stripe when they were allowed into town.
1: But Donna Skelly, the reporter, would have shown up, gotten out of her office and gone down to where the reporter, the premier was going to be, as did Brett Dixon. And she got the interview. So where was the where was why is that? um,
0: Well, that's what I'd like to know, because I've talked to some of my media colleagues and they knew very little about any agenda that was going on or where he was going to be and when he was going to be there.
1: Because we wanted. But so 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 CHCH
0: got inside track then. Is that what you're saying?
1: No, not at all. I didn't. Uh, I didn't give CHCH. Culbert Dixon. I don't know how she got. She found out about it, but she did her job and she was there and she got the interview. Um, I didn't give. Trust me. I didn't give CHCH. There's a no history there, so I did not give CHCH any um, uh, in, inside track. But Bill, this wasn't about the media. This was about business leaders, and you can criticize us, But in ten weeks from now, or in three months from now, when we come back with a concrete list of things that were accomplished. I think that that's far more important than photo ops along the way. I wanted to actually, I know it's... it's, it's um, we're not asking for photo ops, Donna. The media
0: were not asking for photo ops. They are asking for access so they can talk to the Premier about the questions they wanted to ask.
1: They could have been there, Bill. I didn't stop anybody. Why weren't they there?
0: I'm just telling Steve? you that there was. There, I'm
1: telling you, Brett. There was no. There was no problem. I, I would have. And I'm. I'm You're interviewing me now. You could have interviewed. Anybody could have been there. Our priority was not the media. Our priority was talking to the business. Well, community. that's no. My that's. Priority, I know that's pretty obvious that the, my, this. That Mr. Priority, Ford's
0: priority is not the media. He seems to to, to sco- Scoot any possibility not, to no, talk to them or be inquisitive.
1: No, he wasn't though, Bill. But you're, you're being unfair. He was there. If you had been there, he would have spoken to you. So. I know it doesn't fit your timetable or someone else's timetable. our objective my objective was to ensure that the people of Hamilton have an opportunity to to present the the um, the interesting and unique uh, qualities of this city that will help propel us and the province forward in terms of economic prosperity It wasn't about media engagement you could have spoken to him and me or anyone else afterwards your priority may have been different than ours but our priority was our priority to was to talk to the something. premier and you could have and yeah. you could have absolutely you could have well in You're hindsight more, it's easy you for you to there say there, that in hindsight and the
0: fact that there's only one reporter there from one media that tells me that that, that maybe there's well, a, well, there was a lack of well, information that's here that's Which is not unlike what some of the other media conferences. And I don't know, this is, listen, Donna, I get it. This is not your call, but it's very troubling. Very troubling well, for somebody that well, was promising transparency and, and honesty uh, to basically run and hide from the media questions. And, and we've talked about this with the media conferences that he's held before and the hand clapping and, and some of the other stuff that's going on. And I was kind of hoping it would be a better situation in Hamilton, and sadly it wasn't. But anyway, well, I, I get that, and, and I, will you're gonna I know so you're going to disagree. I, I get that. I will
1: argue that we did what we wanted, which was to of course have you a did what you wanted. discussion with the stakeholders, not the media, the stakeholders and the media may be upset but the media could have been there at the end of the day they chose not to instead nobody chose
0: did, not to Donna no, no now you're huh? assuming now you're assuming i'm telling you that there was little to no information uh, given to the media about this visit at all and and that's very unusual for elected officials. But anyway, you're yes, you're, you're going to continue you're going to continue to defend it. I get you know, that. I, I get that.
1: Happy that we aren't governing by photo op. We are governing and getting things done, which is unusual and unlike no. The last I government.
0: I don't want government by photo op. I want government by transparency, and and we're not getting a whole lot of that which yet. Is. And I'm hoping that changes. That's all. Anyway, listen, we only got a couple of minutes left. Uh, one of the other issues that I'm sure came up was LRT, and I know it's been something you've been talking about for a long time. Uh, and there, as you have heard, uh, this is not the media generating this. I'm hearing this from political circles and a number of people on City Council. They're very concerned about the viability of the billion dollars that was committed to the project right now. And uh, you tried to add some clarity to that. Yes. Which is? I
1: heard which is that we're sticking to our original commitment. Um, the money is there for LRT or other forms of transit. And um, approve projects. I think it was pretty clear. We sent out, I, I hadn't heard about it actually, to be very honest with you, other than um, somebody said, I was, I was speaking to this back and they said, we heard that you're canceling the funding. And I said, no, we're not canceling the funding. I don't know where you're hearing this. It could be um, rumors, but uh, obviously it is a rumor. Uh, but no, and I think that the Minister of Transportation made it very, very clear that the funding will stay in Hamilton for LRT, but, and we're not going to wait into it, but if Council rejects LRT, then the funding will be there for other transit-related projects and approved projects.
0: As, as you talked about, uh, well, when you were on council, obviously, because of a, a statement that Mr. Ford had made when he was here running uh, in that provincial election campaign. But, but has the government made any hard and fast decisions about other budgetary things? And you can understand some of the trepidation here, Donna, because, I mean, during that same election campaign, uh, the Ford campaign also said that they were going to stand by the, 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 the basic income project and see that through and, and looked forward to looking to the data that was going to be accumulated. And that was on the chopping block before the ink was dry.
1: Well, Bill, all I can share with you is that this was raised last week, and I think it's pretty clear. There was a news release sent out to, uh, I'm not sure if it was sent to all the media, but the spec had requested it, and a comment was was shared with them from the Minister of Transportation. Uh, I believe it's in Mr. Dreschel's column today, and it's uh, very clear. Um, Yes, this province is in trouble. I can tell you when you talked about the... The pilot project on basic income that was announced without any funding source, we would have been. It would have cost uh, Ontario taxpayers seventeen point four billion annually. Uh, instead, we chose to increase the social assistance programs that exist currently in Ontario by one and a half percent. We couldn't afford to 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 finance that because it would have been about an extra six to seven percent increase on our HST, which I don't think um, Ontarians were really. Able to uh, to to swallow or to accept,
0: and that's that's so, interesting. That's an interesting angle on that because actually, when the minister canceled the program, she said it was because it wasn't being it was not effective and it had nothing at all to do with funding. She didn't mention that at all uh, in that time. So it's uh, but, oh, so we're no, getting no, mixed messages actually, here.
1: No, no, no. She actually did mention the funding. If you if you go through, she mentioned the
0: cost of, of it, but she didn't say that was yeah. the reason. She said it wasn't working, and well, which may us scratch our heads because there's no data to suggest that it's not working, but. Be that as it may. So this is hard and fast. So, so to, on this on this LRT file, then, mm-hmm. uh, if you can, maybe walk us through this. Because at some point, this is, uh, has been sold, as you know, Donna, as, as, an, as an economic development project, as much as it has been about a transportation project. And that's right into your wheelhouse, of course, with, uh, with your job as uh, the parliamentary assistant for that department and that portfolio. Uh, how soon after the municipal election would you be looking for a commitment from city council about what they want to do with this money? Or do you care one way or another?
1: We're not waiting into it. It really will be City Council's decision. If they drag this on for the next 25 years, if they drag it on for the next 25 years, if they want to deal with it in the first uh, three months of council, then they can do so. We're not going to um, weigh in on that at all. It's up to City Council.
0: So you, there's no time frame at all. It's not as if you're going to say, okay, no. we need to know because we're doing our budgets, which uh, no. I assume you guys are in the process of doing right now at Queen's Park.
1: Yes, um, I am suggesting that is now, but I don't. I don't. I haven't raised that. I'm. I have not raised that. Nor have. So I'm. I'm assuming that that again. My, my uh, position has been it. It could change, but I haven't actually approached the minister on a on a specific hard and fast timeline. Um, but uh, what we've said is we really are looking for guidance from city council. All
0: right. Uh, I got about sixty seconds left. Uh, since you did bring the premier down to show him the go station uh... which is underused obviously uh... did you discuss a plan anything about this i mean all day go service is something that we've been talking about for about fifteen years here in this area and uh... we're waiting
2: we
1: did we discuss a specific plan i showed it to him and showed him how much i believe it has to be part if we're going to be talking about economic development we have to talk about the movement of goods if we're going to talk about the movement of goods we have to talk about congestion one way of addressing congestion is getting cars off the roads, people into go, and, and he has wanted to have all day go to, to Niagara. This was simply an, um, a point to show him we have the station. We just don't have the service. That was on Thursday. I'm at uh, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario right now. Um, it will be raised with the that issue and a number of issues that were raised by the stakeholders in the meeting on Thursday will be um, forwarded to the appropriate ministers and action will be taken.
0: Uh, Well, we look forward to that update when it happens, uh, hopefully sooner than later as well. I know how busy it is at those meetings, Don. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for this today.
1: No problem. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML a lot of eyes will be turning to Halifax uh, later this week as uh, the federal conservative convention gets started it's uh, a policy convention and uh, by the way there's some very uh, I would think controversial issues that are going to be discussed at this policy convention in Halifax uh, with an election just about a year or so away but what seems to be overshadowing that right now is the the conflict between uh, conservative leader Andrew Scheer and Maxime Bernier now you know the history on this of course that Scheer defeated Bernier by the narrowest of margins at the leadership convention last year. Uh, It seems as if Bernier did not take the defeat well. He's uh, taken shots at uh, Scheer and Scheer's leadership ability on more than one occasion. And, uh, of course, his comments about uh, what uh, he called uh, extreme multiculturalism uh, have uh, sent Scheer to the media microphones once again to condemn the remarks, but not Bernier himself. There's obviously a personality conflict right now, and uh, Scheer commented on that
3: took me by surprise. I haven't heard him uh, express those types of things in that manner before. And and, and giving the impression that the two are mutually uh, uh, impossible to to, to do. The the two things of of welcoming people from around the world, uh, recognizing that we are a a country made up of people from very diverse backgrounds, and at the same time, uh, work towards uh, integration, uh, promote the acceptance and and the embracement of, of fundamental Canadian principles like equality, tolerance,
1: the rule of law.
0: So that's the state of policy, and, and, and that's been going on in the Conservative Party for some time. And obviously Bernier is, is bucking that trend. And, and in fact, by doing that, obviously, is calling into question, I guess, the leadership of, of Andrew Scheer once again. Can a party be united with this kind of controversy going on with an election not that far away? Peter Grave comes into the conversation, uh, professor of political science at McMaster University. Peter, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the time today. Nice to be back. I want to talk a little bit about some of the policy stuff because those are some headlines in and of themselves. But what about this this uh, butting of heads between Sheer and Bernier? Is it, is it going to be uh, is it going to be harmful to these guys going forward? I mean, the party as a whole.
3: Uh, well, I mean, obviously, yes, it's harmful in that uh, every day Andrew Scheer would like uh, to be in the media, putting forward some criticism of the Liberal government or putting forward some idea of his own, and instead he's putting out fires and, you know, questions about the, you know, the people criticizing his own party. So, I mean, it's certainly harmful in that nature. Uh, The fact that uh, Maxime Bernier is not showing himself to be a team player rallying around the leader means that on a day-to-day basis Andrew Shear doesn't know when you know the next uh, explosion is coming if you like and so that too is problematic for him in in his leadership so i mean it is a clash of personalities uh, that's uh, significant and uh, you would think that he would take some sort of action to sideline Maxime Bernier but the trouble is that when someone wins almost 50% of the votes in the leadership race uh, you know, and and you've come out and said, well, you'll take money away from universities if they don't allow free speech on campus, and it's a bit hard to begin to say, well, I'm not going to have some kind of capacity of, of members of caucus to to put forward their own views.
0: I mean, there are always going to be backbench MPPs or MPs in this case, obviously a federal government uh, that may step out of line, and there have been a couple actually in Shear's case in the last little while, and they're they're easy to to deal with when they're just backbenchers. But Bernier, as you mentioned, Peter, is a guy that still swings a lot of weight within the party. As you mentioned, almost half of the co- the people in that party voted for him. He, he won it by percentage points. I mean, you know, point zero zero or something like that. Uh, and, and he's a guy that's, the, that's still well uh, well-intentioned, I guess, from his own political standpoint, but well-respected by an awful lot of people, maybe to the extreme right of the Conservative Party.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think upon winning the leadership, uh, Andrew Scheer made the mistake in not bringing Bernier much closer to him and giving him much more uh, significant responsibilities. You know, had he done so in a situation like this, well, then he could have began taking away those responsibilities. In some ways, it's actually easier when people have a step to go down to deal with the discipline than if really the only thing left is to to boot him out of caucus uh, when he's such a significant player. But, uh, I mean, Scheer didn't seem to want to bring Bernier in too close, and maybe you can understand why when you can see what kind of team player uh, Maxime Bernier seems to be from these latest, uh, you know, incidents. But, you know, in so doing, it gave him very little leverage to try and manage uh, someone who nevertheless has a very strong following in the party, and and particularly among a lot of the younger operatives uh, uh, who are really true believers in the idea of, you know, small or next-to-no government uh, and free markets. I mean, Maxime Bernier is, in many ways, uh, there. Uh, you know, the, the star they follow.
0: It's like that classic line from The Godfather, isn't it, Peter? You know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Is that is that a political moray, too? Uh,
3: I think so. I mean, we saw that. I mean, ultimately, it didn't work in the long run for Jean Chrétien because Paul Martin stayed close to him and was able to uh, lever him out of, of power in two thousand three, I guess. But. Uh, you know, that would be an example of someone who chose to take his rival and give him the most important role in his government, the the finance ministry, and to support him in that role for a success. Uh, and ultimately, it did manage, you know, despite really significant divisions within that party, to have a workable way uh, of organizing a government for a decade. So... Yeah, I think in most cases, uh, it's important to find a way to integrate, uh, you know, one's uh, opponents, particularly in these leadership races, because the leadership race isn't just people marking, you know, notes on a ballot. It's a lot of members of the party dreaming that person X would be the best leader. There's, you know, 50 you uh know, maybe not 50%, who thought, you know, he was the best leader because he picked up votes from the other candidates. But there's a significant chunk of young conservatives who saw Maxime Bernier as a way forward. So it's not just Bernier who has, in a sense, his feelings hurt in this situation. There's a lot of other members of the party who are mourning the decision that was taken. And so to find a way to deal with that sadness and that disappointment you know, is, is important for leaders if they want to maintain... A, a unity within their party and the, the motivation of members going into an election next year.
0: Peter I'm obviously asking you to speculate here but I mean what's what's in Bernier's head right now what what's the long-term goal here is he, is obviously he's trying to undercut Shear and or maybe even the party's confidence in Shear is, is it ultimately to to get him out of the leadership role or to embarrass the party I mean, because obviously there're going to be ramifications to this.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if Maxime Bernier's lesson that he drew from the last leadership convention is that he's never going to be leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And so then what does he do after that? I mean, given a bit more time to reflect and a bit more time to to be uh, serene, you know, he might come to uh, different and less destructive kind of options. But I suspect his his decision is, well, he wants to actually push forward a, a number of ideas. And to be an idea leader in the party, including ones that are uncomfortable to the current leadership, so I think that's the role he's given himself in this in this moment. You know, whether it, the the manner of pursuing that is is the best is is another question to ask. But you know, clearly he sees he's not going to be a cabinet minister of any importance should the Conservatives form a government in a year's time. So if he wants to make a difference in politics, it's less at that level, and in trying to push the Conservative Party in certain directions, whether it's in. Uh, getting rid of supply management, or, I mean, a bit more surprisingly, given his campaign, which was really about free markets and in otherwise being very libertarian, let people be as they are. But there also seems to be a, a desire to try and push back against some kind of concept of diversity or multiculturalism in Canada that we've, we've also seen as an idea that he's
0: championing in this moment. When we look at some of the things they are going to discuss, uh, some of these policy initiatives, uh, you wonder if they're more reflective of some of the things Bernier was talking about during the campaign. Uh, you mentioned about, uh, for instance, supply management. Uh, the, one of them about is about the idea of scrapping supply management of agricultural products. Uh, they're talking about uh, regulating abortion, uh, repealing gender identity legislation, uh etc etc in other words moving uh what some people thought was a party that was trying to appeal to the centrists uh moving the far more to the right again
3: yeah i mean i think there's a real uh difficulty in the conservative party because it's an ideological party and and it's really being inflamed at the to- at the moment by groups by the rebel uh, rebel media, Um, there's a lot of people who've been very interested in, you know, Jordan Peterson and his kind of, uh, you know, the the ideas that he's putting forward. And so there's a base that really does want to push the party on a number of these issues in in a direction that probably uh, doesn't reflect uh, what's going to be popular in the upcoming election. I suspect we'll see a great deal of stage managing uh, at this convention as at any convention because a real point from the point of view of the Conservative Party is that uh, Andrew Scheer gets a platform to put forward whatever ideas are going to frame the Conservative election uh, platform next year. And I mean, I'll be interested to see them because in many ways, the opposition to date has been much more focused on things like the price of swing sets, uh, you know, for the prime minister and so (laughs) on than on a vision for the country. And so, you know, it's a moment to begin to put that forward to build towards uh, the next election. And uh, I presume that the party operatives, but also, you know, people who go to these conventions are also interested in seeing the electoral success of the conservative party. So I would presume that a lot of the more controversial issues are going to be uh, if you like, uh, downplayed, uh, not brought to the floor of the main convention because they have, you know, policy discussions uh, sort of privately in small rooms before they get to a small number that are brought to the full convention. So there may be, you know, one token issue that will be important to a more, uh, socially conservative uh, or radically conservative base that will be put forward, but I suspect the rest will be fairly meat and potatoes. Uh, smaller government issues uh, and will reflect the kinds of themes that Andrew Scheer wants to bring forward and will be bringing forward in his convention speech.
0: Obviously, this is where strategies are developed. Uh, the platform is the platform, but obviously this is supposed to be geared towards winning that election next year. Uh, and 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 if there's one thing we learned in politics is you can't just run and say, "Well, I'm not that guy." You've got th- there's got to be something of substance here in in what they're trying to do here to present an alternative. Uh, and and clearly, this is this is a, a I guess the main chance right now for them to actually identify and brand themselves.
3: Yeah, well, I think most Canadians really don't have much of an idea who Andrew Scheer is, and so it is an important moment for them in in building for that convention to put that forward and to begin to put forward the ideas that will distinguish themselves from the Liberals in the next campaign. And clearly there's a bit of fatigue for the current government, as you'd expect, you know, about three years in. Um, But I I don't think the Conservatives have necessarily gone much beyond that to explain why they'd be the alternative, or even to to name the specific problems that uh, are there with the government. I mean, they have maybe a laundry list, but I don't think they've really framed them up. So it is a moment for them to do that. I mean, it is also, you know, remarkable uh, for me to see that, you know, Andrew Scheer has been there now well over a year, hasn't really put a mark with the Canadian public, but the uh, the Liberals themselves haven't really done much to brand Andrew Scheer themselves in terms of trying to create, you know, a less flattering image. So in a way, you know, the Conservatives have the sort of fortunate situation of being able uh, to start fresh with a blank slate with Andrew Scheer in this convention and really begin to build what he is, uh, looking forward to next year's election.
0: I, I agree with you totally. I, I, I mean, you're just by way of comparator, I mean, in the Liberals' uh, attempt to find a new leader, first it was Stefan Dion and then ultimately Michael Ignacev. Uh the Conservatives jumped all over those guys within 24 hours of winning the the, the party leadership and tried to identify them. And, and a lot of people I've talked to have said the Liberals had a missed opportunity here to do that with Andrew Scheer.
3: Yeah, I mean, and in fact, we don't really know. I mean, in the very first days after he was elected, there was a bit of a push to say he's way too conservative. Uh, not uh, And particularly, he's too tied to the, the crazies around the rebel media uh, and taking on, uh, you know, people from there who seem to be more interested in outrage than in facts. But that lasted a couple of weeks and has really died down. And it's, it's not clear. I mean, that's maybe a bit too inside baseball for the broad Canadian public who probably don't even know what the rebel media is. So, you know, it's it's a question of how will they frame Andrew Scheer differently? Uh, you know, is it really the, the radical right they have to, to tar him with, or are there other questions about his level of competence, his level of preparation? What You know, what has he done in his life to prepare him to be prime minister? You know, those kinds of questions, you know, might be brought forward. I mean, he spent a lot of time, uh, you know, in and around the, the speaker's chair, um so you know what does he really stand for it's it's not clear to me exactly how the liberals are going to try and frame him in an unflattering light but uh, you know, there haven't really been many attempts since the first few weeks when they tried to say, well, he's too far to the right.
0: But with that argument, and I, re- I recall that, you know, the, the rumblings about that from the opposition parties of that time, and, and Scheer went out of his way to say, I'm not that guy, and, and almost tried to paint himself as, as a m- m- much more of a centrist. But when all of a sudden the discussion uh, is heading into this thing this week, though, is, is about extreme multiculturalism, uh, you've got to wonder if they're being pulled back into that realm, too, of being too extreme.
3: Yeah, Well, I mean, I think the Conservative Party is at a really difficult moment, because on the one hand, uh, you know, for the past 40 years, they have all been about, uh, you know, multiculturalism. They haven't changed the rates of immigration into this country in any significant manner. Uh, You know, in some ways, they increased the flows of people uh, with temporary foreign worker program when they were in power under Stephen Harper. But on the other hand, they're going to the electorate, at least provincially, and running hard on this idea that somehow there's all these uh, people coming to you, sanctuary cities, and going to steal your health care. And so they're they're playing, I think, a very dangerous game at the moment in terms of, uh, you know, some of the themes they're trying to develop about, you know, how Canada is being overrun by people from other places. And so... At a certain point, they're going to have to make a decision about which way they go. And, uh, you know, I think Bernier's tweets, in a way, highlight uh, this tension within the Conservative Party, on the one hand, claiming to be, you know, historically open, much more open than Conservative parties in Europe uh, to immigration and to uh, thinking about ways of accommodating cultural diversity. But on the other hand, seeing that in election campaigns, it can really sell to be running, uh, you know, uh, this kind of fear campaigns about Canada being overrun.
0: Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. You're welcome. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to uh, sources, they say there have been multiple instances of armed robberies at stores, especially the Rogers and Bell stores, targeting the unlocked new devices. Uh, Bell said this in a submission to the CRTC. Now, the CRTC had requested information from the carriers to assess how these new rules are working out. Like, hey, how's it going? And they were kind of shocked, I think, to actually hear this. Now, just to give this a historical perspective on this, uh, this happened back in December 1st. The CRTC mandated that all carriers have to unlock phones uh, for free and sell only unlocked phones going forward. But apparently that makes them uh, very attractive to thieves, and it's caused an ongoing problem. And uh, that's why we're concerned about what this is going to – the impact that this is going to have. Now, previously – uh, telco sold uh, customer phones that were locked to their networks, right? Remember those days? And you were charged a fee, generally about 50 bucks, to unlock them so people could switch providers. And uh, it was considered by many people to be intrusive. And they said, "What? L- listen, we don't want to have anything to do with this. Well, uh, what has happened then, of course, is that uh, the, the CRTC and the government responded and said, okay, you have to unlock phones. But uh, now we're starting to deal with the consequences of that decision. Adam Oldfield, the president and CEO of FPM and FPM3 Marketing, and of course the host of Tech Talk, which is heard every Friday on the Bill Keller Show on CHML, joins us to talk about the ramifications. Adam, I know you're on the road. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for being with us today. Yes.
2: Oh, no, not a problem, Bill. Not a problem at all. You know how these cell phones work. You know, I have mine unlocked and then it's locked and it gets real finicky how it goes, right? So, well, I mean, <laughs> it's been heck just trying to figure out how phones work these days with unlock the lock.
0: Well, we had a discussion about this on Tech Talk, and and I think we said rather jokingly, but maybe there's some merit to it right now, that any time that the consumers say, hey, we got a problem here, and the government says, we'll come to the rescue, look out, uh, because there's always going to be some consequence to it. Are you surprised by what's going on here and what Bell and, and Rogers are complaining about?
2: No, not at all. And I think really the biggest thing when we saw the unlocking of phones, it's a security measure when it comes to the telephone companies. Yeah, It is a factor that they're able to lock in their customers and, and be able to say, here's the value you offer. Whenever you go to any one of these companies, they always give you the incentive. There's the two-year, which, remember, it used to be three. Now it's two. The consumer should have more control of what products they have. So this doesn't surprise me at all. And this has been a problem, not just in Canada. It's been also a problem in the U.S. And I know that as i have a plan in the usa yeah. and it's been the same thing i hear on that side of the border is our phones need to be unlocked now they are a little ahead of us and they've had that ability but they've got the same concerns phones get uh, stolen and i like to use the analogy that in the old days when we had cash and and you had a lot of theft problems in a ca- and it still exists where you have some of your money disappears the new currency today is smartphones when you've got Note 9s and S9s valued at 1000 or $1,500, that little box with an electronic has an immediate uh, street value of at least 10 to to 15% less than that. So it doesn't strike me as any kind of surprise. However, the way that they do this is that when the phones are delivered to each of the telecommunications companies, they are pre-locked. To that provider so bell gets a shipment of note nines so forth they're locked to them and what the problem is is they have to now when they sell them provide them unlocked and lock them directly for each of the consumers so in light of this i see this as we've as citizens been able to overcome our limitations at the same time, the big companies are going, we've got a real problem on hand. Our staff, I hate to I'm not accusing all staff of theft, but there's a big issue. That's a lot of money when it comes in a carton and there's over $10,000 in a small box of value. And so I want I want to
0: talk lot. to you about that because I mean some people when they say there's a lot of thefts might think, well this is happening right on the, sh- on the store floor in the sales and it, no. and it, it may yeah. well be these the impression I got it, these are going out the back door.
2: Correct, that is right. Yeah. And I think the impression is people aren't walking into a store. You've you've seen them where you have your fake models versus uh, uh active models and you know what the real challenge is is that these products that you look at are for display only uh they do have working models but not as many usually only the most recent trendy iphones and note uh, note 9s s9s so in light of this this is happening behind the scenes which i have to agree bell and rogers tell us all of them freedom they're uh they're all having this major issue how do i supply control my phones when they're locked I have a lot more uh, uh, capability to know that this phone is useless to anyone and when they do try to unlock it it will create a problem because they have to go through their system to be able to be released so in light of this i feel for the corporations not sorry for them i feel for them but in the same time how does how does this become a problem or a solution i know in in the u.s i used to be with verizon what they were doing was locking it for six months Regardless of the plan, you had to have your phone locked. Even though you bought it out, it would be locked to that provider for a minimum of six months. Now, they're getting a lot of heat on that side of it, but it gives them security. Their products can't be easily out the back door and on Kijiji in a matter of days.
0: But they've even Verizon down in the States has, has modified their program now, haven't they? And I know that they agreed to that initially because they got what was it, more bandwidth or something from the FCC. So That's they right. said, yeah, right, okay, we'll do this. But I yeah, guess they're exactly. facing the same problem right now, and my understanding is Verizon now is is actually, well, I don't know if we're reversing it, but now uh, they're locking phones until they're actually activated. In other words, if that phone's going to be locked until I buy it, and then they'll say, okay, fine, we'll unlock it for you now, because you're going to put it in your pocket and walk out the store.
2: Even one f- step further, they'll unlock it only after a minimum of three to six months.
0: Ah, okay. That's-
2: so when you buy it, it's technically, it's, it's not, you can't walk out with an unlocked phone and go to AT&T immediately. Uh, but they are locking it for a minimum of three to six months. I don't know what the exact number is, but they will at six months allow you to unlock the phone at that time. So what they're doing is they're just putting a little level of security and they're getting a lot of heat on that in regards to how they're managing it. So from that perspective, I think Canada could learn from that. I think that's fair to put a minimum of 90 days, on a phone that's recently purchased on their network to give them a little more security and safety knowing that they're spending millions of dollars on these phones and to have them walk out the back door and immediately be evaluated on the street at one-third the price uh, at their cost that's a serious problem and they got to come up solutions on how to best manage
0: that. Yeah, I'm not going to crawl crocodile tears for Bell or Rogers or Telus. I think their, their profit margins are <laughs> in pretty solid shape right now. But by the same token, we've talked on Tech Talk, Adam, about how expensive these things are. And and like you say, most of the newer models right now, you're looking at a thousand or more than a thousand bucks for most of them. So there's a huge investment here. And and, and I mean, this is, let's face it, this is, this is theft on a grand scale to be taking boxes and boxes of these things. And Uh, you got to feel for them. And here's the CRTC, on the other hand, that actually forced them to do this, thinking we're going to help the consumer out here because we're getting all kinds of consumer complaints about this. Do they not think about what the ramifications would be?
2: Well, I don't think anyone assumed this would be a problem. We always sometimes make rules in these degrees and not realize the ramifications until after they're in place. So when I, when I look at this and I say, okay, we have now uh, an open market for the consumer, um, rightfully so, each of these Bell companies and Rogers and Telus companies, they have a right to protect their inventory. And part of this is their inventory is really an open book, and as we mentioned, you can take it anywhere and make it work. So in light of that, we don't know of any of these challenges, and we'll probably hear about more of them, Bill. This has only been uh, in the last uh, eight, eight months that the unlocked phone problem has become, a pro- has become a bigger issue. And I think as we see the more expensive phones come out, we know that these phones are huge, huge value. Just that you, you said it well. These are not minor theft. If we're talking about 10 Note 9s, that's equal to $10,000. 10,000 street, more than that, it's almost actually $14,000 in street-level value for them. That, that box of product that's unlocked, if I had access to this, do you know what I'd be able to get if I was to put that on a, on a shipping container and send it to Saudi Arabia or be able to send it anywhere in Europe because of the fact that these phones are used anywhere in the world? Side note to this, Bill, is that Canadian phones are set up on a network, not like the U.S., that they work worldwide. American phones do not always work in Europe. They're on a different signal. They don't work 100%, which makes Canadian unlocked cell phones, even that more valuable worldwide.
0: Well, and I've heard stories because of that, that uh, not surprisingly, that uh, this is not, by by the way, a bunch of kids that are are, are ripping these things off. This is organized crime. And and a lot of these organized crime groups from the states are now targeting Canadian outlets uh, for those thefts because they know that there's a worldwide market for it.
2: Absolutely. This market is probably almost valued more than what we're seeing with cannabis and cocaine at that matter. I mean, this is like bricks of gold being shipped in a paper box with electronics inside of it. And so the, this is where the market value, if I was looking at sort of the black market, this is truthfully in a Canadian value. I mean, 1,000, just to you a perspective of value here, Bill, 1,000 Note 9s, which could easily fit in the back of your SUV is worth 1.4 million dollar street value. Wow. 1000 of them. So, if you took 1000 at 1.4 million dollars, and that's Canadian, taking that into a here's a phone that's pr- uh, brand new available on the market, unlocked and and you could do whatever you want with it, I can totally see that the telco companies are all going, we need something from you CRTC to help us protect our investment. Why why are we going through the process of doing that? You're putting us in, business, uh, in a lost position, and it doesn't make sense. And that's only a 1,000. And that's uh, note 9. So times that by how many more uh, uh, volumes that that could equate to. So this is a serious problem. This, is almost not, this isn't a joke in the case of, like you said, uh, Jimmy took a phone and he's selling it. We're talking a very big value of $1.4 million on a thousand phones. And that's a serious contention that CRTC needs to think about.
0: So what's the solution here? you like that Verizon model down on the States? Should we look at that?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, if I was in charge, as I like to think of myself all the time in that position, I would, I would say that 90 days, all phones related to that network would be locked. So in 90 days, if the consumer so wishes, they can at no cost uh, reach out to customer service by calling in or by going into one of their store facilities, proving their 90 days is up, and they will unlock that phone at no cost. That is a very fair price to pay. And for the consumer using it, they know they're not in any odds other than a 90-day usage uh, to protect the interest of, of the actual uh, menu or the uh, provider uh, from a theft issue. I think that is the best solution. Nobody usually buys a phone within 90 days. Uh, and if they have a problem in 90 days, they're going to go back to them and say, I have a problem with my phone, or here's the issue. And you usually, under a warranty period in that time frame, would be able to exchange it or do what you want otherwise. So in this case, I feel, and in, in, in this is the best solution, I think the CRTC needs to look at it, for the consumer for the distributor uh, and for the supplier, this is the best option.
0: And just to keep in mind, as a postscript, I know we're almost out of time, uh, if, if they don't rectify this problem and the stock losses and this theft continues, uh, the costs get passed on to consumers. So we need to be cognizant of that, too. Adam, we'll look for you to, uh, on Friday for, uh, for Tech Talk. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. We'll Adam Oldfield, of course, from FPM3 Marketing. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.